Well, you made it. It is Friday once again, time for the weekend. And you are listening to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Friday, May 20th, 2022. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. And we so appreciate you subscribing to the podcast and just ask you to do us a favor. Really helps with the success of the podcast if you'll leave us a little review and make sure you subscribe if you aren't already and be sure to spread the word as well. We are once again on the wildfire beat this week as the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire burning up near Mora and Las Vegas, now the largest wildfire in New Mexico state history and still not even 50% contained as of Thursday. Is only about 38% contained. We know that that fire started as a prescribed burn from the Forest Service that got out of control back in early April. We're going to be talking about that and the search for answers. We've got a lot about the federal relief headed our way, perhaps even a presidential visit to look at the destruction from the fires. And of course, today, if you've been outside at all, you know the winds are whipping once again, which is just a worst case scenario for the firefighters out there doing their very best to keep these fires at bay. And so we're going to kick things off in this episode. If you are like us here, especially our land correspondent, Laura Paskus, you are watching uh, the maps that come out each and every day to track the progress of these wildfires and it's no small task to put these things together and to really try to tell a comprehensive story through these maps and so she caught up with uh, Steve Bassett who's with the Nature Conservancy has done some great work with these maps and so he wanted to find out where he's getting his information and how he's putting it together and just the work that he has put into all of this and how we can all learn from it. So we're going to kick things off with that interview. Again, here's our land correspondent, Laura Paskus and Steve Bassett. Hi, Steve Bassett. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Laura. It's great to be here. So you have been mapping the Hermit's Peak and Calf Canyon fire. I've been seeing your maps um, every day. I was wondering if we could start with where do you get your data and how are you putting these together? Yeah, I've been mapping um, using data provided by the U.S. Forest Service. Um, The daily progression maps that I've been posting online um, incorporate uh, infrared flight data. So each evening, the Forest Service or its contractors fly over the fires uh, and the hot spots and the perimeter of the fire is easily to, easily mappable uh, from that heat data. Um, and so they upload it to a server and then it, it typically sits there until a public information officer has time to develop it into a format that works for the public. Um, and with, with the skills that I have and kind of the desperation I was feeling, uh, I, I went out and grabbed that data and did something with it to, to get some more information out in, into the public hands. Um, and showing this daily progression, the daily growth, uh, communicates a lot of the information that, that people need uh, when they're, they're thinking about these fires. Is my watershed burning? Is my community burning? Uh, where is the fire headed? What are the fuels in front of it? Um, and to be able to, to provide that map, um, using that authoritative data has just been um, helped me feel less helpless uh, and and feel like I'm helping uh, during this catastrophe. Yeah, I've really appreciated looking at your maps every morning. Um, Like you said, you're showing how the fire is moving, where it's moving. Um, and, And the thing that I've really appreciated is is you lay out those numbers every morning of how much the fire grew the previous day. Um, You know, I know the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire now has been burning since April. It's big, it's complex, but I'm curious if there are a few things maybe within the past week that have really jumped out at you about its progression or its behavior. Uh, First, I wanna acknowledge the tremendous job that the incident command team and all the firefighters uh, have uh, all the effort that they've put into to shaping the way this fire spreads and, and protecting our communities, watersheds. Um, the, the 
the mapping uh, is, is kind of incidental to that, but I'm glad to be able to provide that. Um, they, uh, anyway, hats off to those folks and, and those communities. Um, the, the, the biggest patterns that, that I've seen in, in these data lately have been fire spreading more to the, more to the west, uh, into the Pecos wilderness, um, but also to the north. Um, the, just the, the trends in the wind patterns have been relatively erratic. Um, that we don't know where this fire is going to burn. Its perimeter is huge. So uh, anywhere that there's active burning within that perimeter, it has the potential to spread, um, usually pushed by the wind. Um, I'm, I'll share uh, this the map from this morning. Today's or yesterday's growth is the darkest red, and it was a really great day uh, relative to the preceding weeks. Uh, just over 1,600 acres burned. Uh, yesterday. Uh, so the increased humidities really helped with that. Um, you can see a dashed line representing the, um, the boundary of the Pecos wilderness. It's it's starting to get a foothold over there. Um, uh, lots of continuous fuels uh, for it to burn through. Um, but this, this growth to the northwest um, ha has been kind of the most um, most extreme growth recently. Some of these larger areas from, from past wind events, past extreme uh, red flag days, uh, were, were really um, shocking. Uh, the scale of, of the, the fire spread within a day. Um, these darker grays are where the fire was uh, almost two weeks, over two weeks ago, um, as it made some big runs um, towards, the, uh, towards these communities, um, through um, and towards these communities. So uh, we've seen moderation of fire behavior since then, uh, but still a lot of potential out there for growth. Yeah, there was one day last week, I recall you posting one of the maps and the, the previous day there had been like 30,000 acres of growth. I mean, that just seems uh, devastating and remarkable. So when we look at a fire perimeter map like that, um, I like your maps because they, they kind of show the 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 changes over time, but when we look at a map like that, does that mean that there's fire burning or that a fire has burned within that entire perimeter? Or are there pockets within there that maybe haven't burned or are, are have been burned past? Uh, so within a perimeter like that, there will be varying levels of fire uh, intensity and burn severity. Um, and I'm going to share a satellite image. So this is a false color satellite imagery uh, of the Calf Canyon fire from May 13th. Um, and some, some of the notable elements are the, the flaming front showing up in orange, the, the brightest orange colors, the smoke visible. Um, you can see the, the burned, the darkest burned areas here in purple. Uh, they would show up black if we were up in a satellite looking down. Uh, but with the, the false color, uh, different bands that we can't see, infrared made visible, uh, they show up uh, as, as this deep purple. Um, you can see a mosaic of burn severities in some parts of the fire, uh, but other areas, it's all purple. And those are the places where um, tree mortality is gonna be very high. Um, and on a, a huge map like this, of this huge fire, those patches look relatively small, but some of them are miles across in both you know, all, all directions. Um, uh, more recently, we've been seeing um, high, high severity fire just about everywhere, no low severity fire, uh, but I imagine it's still happening out there on the ground. Uh, we're looking forward to doing some additional analysis uh, to look at the effects of uh, forest restoration treatments and um, the kind of patterns within that burn severity. Yeah, so let's talk about that. What do we know about um, forest treatments in the area that has already burned or the areas where it's moving? Do we have a sense of, of what is on the ground there? Yeah, I, I don't have a map uh, of those treatments, but there's a great map produced by folks at Highlands University. Um, they have an interactive map viewer, the New Mexico Forest and Watershed Restoration Institute. Uh, has produced a, a map that shows the overlay of the current fire perimeter and all the treatments that have happened um, uh, to date. Mm -hmm. uh, there have been um, a, a number of them, um, but probably not um, not to a degree where it altered the uh, trajectory of the fire on a landscape scale, maybe locally uh, protected resources and um, 
pres preserved um, so, some of the habitat and um, ecosystem um, health of those areas. So as you've been paying attention to this, and of course this week, this particular fire, the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire, surpassed the Whitewater Baldy fire in size. Um, you know, are there particular, um, as you've been watching and mapping, are there certain things that have surprised you, or is this kind of acting like a fire would act in our climate-changed world? Yeah, I, unfortunately, I haven't been surprised. Um, as, as we're looking at the uh, extent of, of the drying and, and the wind, um, this is the type of fire that happens under those conditions. Um, the, and the continuity uh, of fuels, uh, once, once a fire starts, uh, there's very little stopping it um, in this landscape. It's, um, I've got a context map here. Um, that just shows uh, it's, a, it's continuous forest um, virtually, you know, all, all the way to Colorado and, and beyond uh, where we're seeing the, the three active fires in, in northern New Mexico, Cerro Palado, Calf Canyon, Hermit's Peak, and Cook's, Cook's Peak. Um, the, there's very little, there's, there's few burn scars. The Vivash fire certainly offers um, uh, some um, fuel alteration, but it's an old enough fire scar that the fire is burning through it. Uh, there's there's been a few fires north of the current fire perimeter, um, but you know, very continuous fuels um, over a large area, uh, very little to break up the spread of fire. Well, thank you, Steve Bassett, for joining me. I really appreciate your maps, which, like you mentioned, are coming from the official sources of data, but you're um, putting them up there in, in really helpful ways. So thank you. Thank you, Laura. No surprise to anyone, but many of our national forests are now officially off limits to the public because of this continued wildfire threat. That announcement came midweek. It also came at a time when someone in the Bosque decided to light a handful of fires. Those were quickly put out, but Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller at the time said he wanted to make sure the Bosque stayed open so that there were other people in these areas and they can catch these things early before they get out of hand, as well as hopefully self-police these important wildlife areas. And so wanted to uh, pose that question to our line opinion panel for this week, as well as talk about some of the things we hinted at at the top of the show. The governor uh, talked to the president this week about the emergency help and assistance coming our way and potentially a visit from President Biden to New Mexico to see the damage firsthand. All indications are that will happen. We just don't know exactly when. Also lingering over all of this, the upcoming 4th of July holiday and fireworks. We've talked about this before, but again, the governor does not have the authority to ban fireworks sales right now. She is encouraging municipalities, some of which have taken her up on that plea, have already banned those sales for the time being. What do you think about the response? Is there more we should be doing? What about those forest closures you can let us know by leaving us a note here on the podcast. You can also reach out to us on any of our social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. Love to know what you think about all of this, but let's head to our line opinion panel. Once again, hosted by yours truly this week as Gene Grant continues to recover from illness. But our line panel this week, we've got a couple regulars, Laura Sanchez, she's an attorney, and Merritt Allen, the owner and founder of Vox Optima PR. Also, Dan Boyd, the Capitol Bureau Chief of the Albuquerque Journal. So let's get right now to the line. Welcome back one final time to our line opinion panelists. With the largest fire in New Mexico history burning right now, the state is taking new precautions to help prevent future fires. Starting Thursday morning yesterday, the U.S. Forest Service instituted Stage 3 fire restrictions. That means all lands, roads, and trails within the Mount Taylor, Mountain Air, and Sandia Ranger districts in the Cibola National Forest are now closed, along with the entire 1.6 million acre Santa Fe National Forest. Merritt, is this, it seems sort of inevitable, but um, does it send an important message, if nothing else? 
Absolutely, and uh, it, it, it had to be done. Um, and of course, it, it, it's ironic. I was struck by, of course, there was a Washington Post article yesterday about the fires. And what struck me is in that article, uh, unconfirmed reports that uh, the Hermit's Canyon, or uh, the, the large fire was caused by uh, a, uh, a prescribed burn. I'm like, where have you been, Washington Post? Everyone's saying this. The governor is saying this. This is why we have a state of emergency declared before it's even over. Um, and, and so how it's looked at it through the national lens. And of course, I think unconfirmed reports means the Forest Service isn't admitting it yet. Right. Um, we've got a, a humanitarian crisis that really boggles the mind. 15 to 18,000 people displaced. Um, that's that, that's a tremendous number, a thousand to fifteen hundred structures uh, destroyed. This this is very different than the Whitewater Baldy fire that was largely in uninhabited areas of the Gila. So it could just be allowed to burn itself out. This is going to take tremendous uh, uh, manpower and effort, and it is not expected to stop burning until July when the monsoons. Uh, monsoons come so yes which could bring flood danger too we could go right exactly. from one disaster to another exactly it's it's a very fragile time um i did appreciate the washington post story picking up on uh the cultural aspects and the generations um of uh of livelihood uh lost with that because some of our you know our oldest settlements are in the area and the path uh, uh in the path of the fire but the forest closures uh i think were inevitable uh we've had them before uh, i i think everyone is seeing this and i i hope we will see more caution and more restrictions to come honestly Flip side of that, Laura, we had a series of fires that were set in the Bosque earlier this week here in Albuquerque. And Mayor Tim Keller said that he is intent on keeping the Bosque open for if no other reason than there are other people in there to catch these things early to maybe help self-police. Is there an argument to be made that that would be good for the National Forest too? Or is it just too big and too catastrophic of a thing to, to keep it wide open? Well, I certainly think the scale of things are very is very different. I mean, the bosque is um, you know, much smaller by comparison, and so you're you're just not seeing the same level of um, of risk to to life and to property as well as to wildlife um, in the bosque. With these, even with a small number of fires that were set, they were able to be contained very quickly. Um, and a large part of that is because so many people use the bosque for recreational purposes. When you're talking about um, the larger fires that have taken uh, taken hold of the state, uh, you're just talking about a, a scale of magnitude that makes it much more difficult to get people in and out of there if they're in harm's way. Um, and with the winds, those fires spread a lot faster than um, you know than anyone can predict. So I, I do think that there's a big difference there. Uh, but I, you know. It, it, on balance, I think it's important to recognize that this is an extreme, it's an extreme move, um, definitely you know, ratcheting up the, the uh, importance of this to close down um, our national forests. I think especially as we head into the summer, a lot of people look to that for recreation, uh, but it sends an important signal to everybody that uh, we have to do everything we can to, um, to make sure that we're able to have forests in the future, that we're able to you know, contain our wildfires. Um, and be responsible about the way that we use some of those lands. So I think it's the right move for the Forest Service to do. Dan, the governor spoke with President Biden earlier this week, invited him out to see the damage from the Herman's Peak Calf Canyon fire. And uh, the president said he did plan to come visit, but we don't have a date yet. Do you think that that publicity will help with the humanitarian crisis that Merritt mentioned earlier? Yeah, I, I think it would be uh, appreciated, um, and I'm told it. I'm told it is, you know, likely at some point he'll he will come out. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that would obviously um, remedy some of the, the really serious issues these folks are dealing with, who've had to evacuate, who have lost their homes, um, you know, their livelihoods, animals, things like that. But I think you know this is the you know the biggest fire currently bigging, burning in the country. I, I think there's still. You mentioned the flooding. I mean, there's a lot of questions about watersheds, um, damage to, uh, you know, places like those that, that these people really rely on and, and still the fire is burning. I mean, we haven't even 
you know, fully extinguished it yet. So I, I think a presidential visit would show, you know, the, the seriousness of this issue. And, and I think it, um, you know, raises the question, certainly in my mind, you know, whether this is going to be kind of the, the new normal every year for New Mexico, kind of seeing these fires earlier and earlier in the year and um, forest closures, you know, for, for a large part of the summer. I mean, um, that they're tough on a personal level. We love getting out and hiking, but I, I think looking at it from the big picture and, and uh, you know, what can be done to try to prevent this type of thing from becoming a routine every year occurrence. Merritt, there's no doubt that the governor has been aggressive on, on many fronts. Another thing she did this week is, is call on the federal government to cover 100 percent of the costs related to the wildfires. Uh, normally, under federal disaster declarations, states end up paying about 25 percent. But because, as you mentioned, the governor uh, reminded that this apparently started as a prescribed fire from the U.S. Forest Service. So her claim is that they should be fully responsible. Is that a fight you think she can win? This reminds me of the release of mine affluent um, in uh, south uh, southwestern Colorado uh, a few years back uh, by the Department of the Interior. I mean, this is uh, again uh, to me a huge uh, a huge gaffe at the nat uh, national level. Uh, and uh, the governor in the state and the people of northeastern New Mexico have every right to be angry. And I think the cap from FEMA is $39,500 for home damages when, uh, you know, five generations of uh, your estate has burned to the ground. I, that's, that's not enough. Um, I, th I think uh, uh, the politics are on the right side. Uh, I think it's possible. I think it's possible. Uh, this is winnable, and certainly, I I think I have an emotional uh, uh, stake in this, as I think everyone in New Mexico does. Uh, I think New Mexico's in the right on this one. We've also heard the governor, Laura, of course, call again for municipalities to ban fireworks sales, because again, she does not have the authority to do that herself, at least as far as. The law stands right now. We have seen some areas do that, but should that just be a given at this point too? Like what are communities waiting for on that front, do you think? Absolutely. I was really surprised when I first uh, relocated back to New Mexico after, uh, you know, after law school uh, that we didn't have a ban on fireworks. It's kind of shocking because I lived, um, you know, I went to undergrad and grad school in Arizona and it was just known that you didn't have fireworks. There were um, displays that were still put on by municipalities and um, they were, you know, it was just, there was just a lot more safety involved. And so it's really surprising that, that there is um, not that same um, level of importance and, uh, and urgency in New Mexico with regard to fireworks. And, you know, every 4th of July, those of us with pets know people tend to, you know, it's not really a day. It's like a month or two months worth. Yeah, of I was going to say, not just the 4th off. of July. Yeah, it yeah. happens a lot. And it's just it's just too dangerous all the way around. So I, I'm glad that she came out with an executive order. I think it was April 25th when she um, asked uh, urging the local local municipalities to come out with their own bans under the Fireworks Licensing and Safety Act. But I think some of those um, local communities are a little reluctant because they do get business. Um, you know, they get GRT as a result of that when their sales of fireworks in their in their area. Um, you get a lot of um, out-of-state companies coming in, so it generates some additional economic benefit. But I think they have to weigh that with the cost of potentially having um, the loss of, of property and, and potential loss of life from uh, from an uncontrolled uh, fire. So I think I think the time has come for them to seriously consider a ban. Yeah. If we're facing a new normal, that may just be part of it as we move forward. Well, thanks again to our entire line panel joining us always virtually on Zoom. Be sure to let us know what you think about any of the topics we talked about on our Facebook, Twitter or Instagram pages. Now for a really thought provoking conversation, all of these wildfires not to mention the constant reporting on climate change, which is related to those wildfires, as we have documented a lot here recently on the show. It has a lot of people feeling very apocalyptic and uh, with good reason, and there's a lot we should be doing to address that. But uh, our land correspondent, Laura Paskus, was recently listening to a presentation from an Arizona professor, Andrew Curley, 
with a really interesting take on catastrophizing climate change, especially from an indigenous point of view uh, in terms of uh, entire, uh, you know, entire communities that uh, are facing uh, these apocalyptic futures. This is nothing new to many indigenous communities, even down to being forced off your land and relocated. This history that is well known, but it leads to a much different perspective on how we look at climate change, not only the causes, but the solutions. And so Laura came back and said, we really need to have Andrew on the show to illuminate his thoughts a little more. And so we're bringing that to you here now as well. And again, this is one of those great opportunities here on the podcast. One of the reasons we hope you uh, subscribe or listen in because we're bringing you the full interview here when we only had time for not even half of it on the show this week. So here now is our land correspondent, Laura Paskus and Professor Andrew Curley. Professor Curley, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So your research focuses on the everyday incorporation of indigenous nations into colonial economies. What are some examples of this? Well, my initial research project as a graduate student, I think was the main example that I had in mind at that time, although there's many other examples, but it was the uh, coal economy in the Navajo Nation, which started in the 1960s, at least in an industrial scale, and um, has come to an end in many parts of the reservation over the last few years. And, um, and so it's thinking about the ramifications of that type of economy, that participation in extractive industries, in coal in particular, the kind of work and labor involved, uh, the kind of revenues generated for the tribal government. And then, of course, the environmental consequences of that type of work. And those are the things that are part of the um, colonial uh, economies uh, that you know surround Indian country and um, and incorporate large parts of our lands into the service of other things. So when we think about coal, a lot of the um, energy produced, in fact, all of the energy produced uh, was going toward outside communities um, and going towards specific types of projects. In this case, um, with, the, with the Kanta mine and the Navajo generating station, uh, the coal was going toward, uh, I mean, the energy produced by coal was going towards the, um, the Central Arizona project, the, the making of this water infrastructure in Arizona. But other parts of the economy, the Navajo mine on the eastern end of the reservation in what is, you know, part of New Mexico, um, that is, uh, that's going towards, um, I think even you, uh, P&M uh, has some, some utility stake in these, in these um, power plants. So that's going towards the the places where PM serves. So all of this is to say the kinds of economic activities generated in the reservation and which were structured uh, through a lot of long term policies from the federal government, a partnership with uh, state officials, um, especially in the 1930s. These um, these economies are geared uh, toward outside interests and especially uh, other communities, settler communities outside of the reservation. So that's that's kind of my general idea of what colonial economies are. Yeah, I just it's when we kind of look at the extraction of of coal or fossil fuels or whatever uranium from indigenous communities and look at how they have fueled entire economies. Is that kind of what what you're looking at? Yeah, uh, going even back further to uranium industry, I mean, the, the, the kinds of economies that are, are built out of the colonial experience are often state-run and state-funded, um, such as uh, what was happening with uranium in the 40s and 50s with the Navajo Nation. And much of the market for uranium was coming from, I think it was the Atomic uh, Energy Commission, or it was the uh, an entity of the federal government who was trying to build up a uranium supply for its own nuclear purposes at the time, and um, and that created the demand for that kind of um, 
resource, you know, which was found to be in abundance in the Napo Nation through the Grants Uranium Belt or Mineral Belt. And so those those are the kinds of um, relationships that develop in, in this particular kind of economic formation, which is, you know, you have very strict restrictions coming out of the, the federal Indian law, coming out of uh, the federal government's long-term policy with tribes. Some of these laws uh, have justifications going back to the 1830s. Uh, that's, you know, the idea of domestic dependent, the idea that that uh, of, of plenary power, which happens, which is a, a theory that uh, develops in the later 19th century, uh, which gives Congress complete control over anything that happens on reservations. You know, all of these things are types of restrictions around tribal governments, which don't exist for the state governments, don't exist for counties, don't exist for other international actors. And so you have this stranglehold over what are the possibilities politically for what tri uh, tribal governments can do. And at the same time, there are incentives built into the to this policy, like the 1937 Indian Mineral Leasing Act uh, that was coming out of the New Deal reforms of the Roosevelt administration that created the legal basis for uh, long-term mineral leasing between tribal governments and outside entities, which explains the, the development and um, long-standing practice of extractive industries in many indigenous nations throughout the uh, western part of the of the of North America. So that's you know that is uh, the way that the the political legal regime of colonialism structures what is possible and what is not possible for tribal economies for tribal governments. You know we couldn't float our own currency if we wanted to. We couldn't make um, uh, trade agreements with Mexico uh, independent of any kind of uh, authority of the United States. Those kinds of uh, agreements, which other nations enjoy, are restricted for tribal nations. But we can do coal mining, we can do uranium mining, we can do gas and oil exploration. So that gives you a sense of how these uh, economies develop over time. Yeah, so you also have written about the intersection of Indian water settlements and COVID um, and why, like say for example, the Navajo Nation still lacks water infrastructure here in the 21st century. Can you explain that intersection a little bit? Yes, um, during the height of the pandemic in uh, 2020 and then even into 2021, we uh, we were thinking through what are the reasons for high transmission rates in the Navajo Nation, and there's a few factors involved. And one of the key suspects was lack of um, of indoor plumbing for many of the uh, households throughout the reservation. Uh, lack of indoor plumbing, which allows for people to wash their hands or to clean dishes or things that will help to uh, sanitize. Uh, their their experience, you know, um, and and try to stay safe among uh, the people in the household, and um, and when we're thinking about the the, the lack of uh, water uh, in people's homes and what are the reasons for that, you know, part of the 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 argument that I was trying to make, part of the connections that I was trying to make, uh, was tied to long-standing delays in our water settlement uh, process and. And that is, um, I mean, it's hard to explain quickly, but it's to say um, after the Colorado Basin states divided the entirety of the Colorado River amongst themselves and its tributaries, uh, excluding all indigenous uh, considerations in the making of the Colorado Compact in 1922, 100 years ago, almost to this day. And um, um, they, um, what, what ended up happening was, um, those the wa water rights, you know, access to water, either in the form of access to the water from the tributaries or access to water from the from the main stem of the Colorado River, these things required some sort of legal political process in order for you to build infrastructure, and and divert water into um, into into the the places where you need it, either for agriculture or for or for household uh, security purposes. So this is a long-standing issue that we've been dealing with uh, for quite some time since the late '70s, and um, when it, when um, when we started to settle some of our water claims, like the 2005 San Juan River settlement uh, between the um, Navajo Nation and the state of New Mexico, we were initially able to secure some water 
uh, infrastructure going toward Window Rock, Fort Defiance, St. Michael's, uh, a lot, one of the larger population centers in the Navajo Nation. And what we were going to do was we were going to move a, a little more than 7,000 acre feet, 7,000 acre feet of water from the Gallup supply line into that Window Rock, Fort Defiance area. And that was something that we agreed to with the state of New Mexico at that time. And New Mexico was okay with it because um, um, it, it kind of violated some arbitrary political lines dealing with the Colorado Compact. Again, I'm sorry, this is <laughs> a little bit like, it gets a little bit historical and technical in weird ways, but um, what ends up with, uh, when you cross a, the state boundary, you're moving between basins and um, at, at least um, the way the basins are divided, I didn't bring a map, I'm sorry, but it goes, w the, 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 call it the San Juan River and the water coming throughout the Gallup supply line is coming from upper basin. And then when you move it into Window Rock and Fort Defiance, you're moving it into the lower basin. And because of how coveted the water is and how, how political the, the basin fights are between upper and lower basins, like moving water across basins is really hard to do, but uh, we were able to secure it. The recipient on the recipient side, it was the state of Arizona who, said, who denied that uh, with John Kyle, who was representing, you know, a lower basin state receiving water ostensibly through this, uh, through this, through this um, settlement. And he he was he was saying we're not going to give water to Navajo Nation until they settle all of their claims with the state of Arizona. A really adversarial approach to uh, getting water to the Navajo Nation. And so when we look back at the record of John Kyle as a senator for Arizona, he was uh, an obstructionist to any kind of water infrastructure that we could have put forward in the Navajo Nation. And this was happening in around the 2005, 2010, 2012 era, era when we were approaching the state of Arizona and negotiating settlements and agreeing to settlements. The Navajo Nation Council and the Hopi uh, Tribal Council agreed to a settlement for the lower water, the lower um, for the lower basin waters, the both the Colorado River and the Little Colorado River, all in one settlement in 2010, so 12 years ago. And um, and one of the things that we wanted in exchange for settling what our claims are to the water and putting it into a more predictable accountability for the state uh, and also for the tribe was we wanted some guarantees of money for infrastructure. That's the main thing we were asking for, especially on the western end of the reservation. And we wanted something like the Gallup supply line on the western end. And Kyle said, no, that's too expensive. It doesn't serve enough people. It's not an interest of his to take that to Congress and put uh, a price tag on it. And so pretty much vetoed that settlement, uh, prevented it from getting um, from from becoming law through the um, through through an act of by bringing it in as a legislation in Congress. And so that just died. That agreement died, and then they tried it again in 2012, and that didn't go through. And that this, and again at 2012, in 2012, we're asking for water infrastructure. So all of these, uh, you know, during these times, 10 and 12 years ago, um, we've been asking for this water infrastructure. And we were willing to um, to negotiate down our water claims in order to just get that infrastructure to bring water into the to the households, especially on the western end of the reservation, which are more remote and have lesser um, uh, lesser rates of water access. I mean, the, the, where you have the high rates of lack of water are in the central area and in the western area. And so that's, you know, for, for the Navajo Nation, for um, the councils at the time, that was a, a, a prime importance. And that was something that, um, because of the state of Arizona's power, you know, the, the authority they have to bring these settlements into law as as with, you know, the representatives in Congress and also with the senators, you know, having that final authority and say, you know, they were they ended up denying that kind of infrastructure, that infrastructure that would have played uh, a, a, a positive role um, when we come into 2020 and into 2021 during the COVID outbreak and the high transmission rates, right? We didn't have a lot of that infrastructure in large part uh, due to the um, due to the shenanigans on the other end with the, um, with the Senator from Arizona. 
Yeah, and these, these sort of historical and legal implications really play out for people on the ground. I wanted to talk with you a little bit more about the Colorado River, which is basically, you know, in crisis mode right now for cities and irrigation districts. Um, there's more of a demand for water than there is a supply right now. Um, you've written extensively about the Central Arizona Project, and I heard you speak recently about scarcity and how we don't talk enough about how dams and reservoirs are what you call the concrete manifestations of colonialist ambitions and how they contribute to drought um, and to this narrative of drought and narrative of crisis. Can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it's the flip side of the problem that I was just talking about with the infrastructure on the Navajo Nation when a uh, boulder canyon act was passed when the hoover dam was constructed you know there's all this mythology and lore about the construction of these infrastructures and then eventually um glen canyon dam parker dam um the central arizona project all of these dams along the lower basin part of the colorado river these um these dams um we're, we weren't asking questions about oh this is too expensive this is not serving enough people. You know, it was all of us future-oriented um, um, ideology, like, oh, we need to create cap in order for Phoenix to grow. We need to create, uh, build these dams in order for the Southwest to blossom. And the problem with, you know, obviously there's a different standard being applied when you're talking about dam. We're talking about infrastructures that serve white communities as opposed to infrastructures that serve uh, native communities, and you can guess why the reason, uh, what the reason is for those double standards. And, and so when you're thinking about things like the Hoover Dam, when you're thinking about things like CAP, and you're thinking about um, the crisis we're in now, and the drought and the, the, the effects of climate change on the Colorado River, you know, that's something like, you know, when you introduce this question, you said there, the river's in crisis for X amount of people, water districts, these people, all of these people who have been benefiting from these colonial diversions uh, for quite some time. And, and if you take it from an indigenous perspective, if you take it from a Navajo perspective, a Dede perspective or Hopi perspective, you're going, to, you're going to see that that river's been in crisis for quite some time. Going back to uh, these first incursions into the region, going back to the construction of the Roosevelt Dam along the Salt River, you know, once the the colonialists came in and started to dam the river and change the ecology, that's when the river started to go into crisis. That's kind of the origin of climate change in the region. It did affect the, the climate. It affected the river, it affected the ecologies of the region. That's exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about climate change. So we can't divorce these infrastructures from the consideration of climate change. And so in the presentation, I show actually that's what... Ex we include these infrastructures when we're thinking about the effects of climate change. We look at reservoir levels and we say, oh, look, there's uh, there's um, climate change here because the reservoirs are sinking. Well, those reservoirs are those colonial intrusions in the first place. They're not natural. They're not meant. The river was never meant to to sit the way it does behind the walls of these uh, dams. And so that itself is the origin of the problem beyond um, this larger question of uh, of um, uh, declining snowpack or faster or faster melting snowpack or 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 prolonged drought uh, in the region. I mean, those things are also important. But what we're not considering are the effects of these dams. You know, they make the water sit there. They have evaporation rates. They are in inefficient ways of getting water. But that's because they work at a scale. They work in a, a form of planning and modernization that made sense uh, to people, to colonialists in the early 20th century, but are, 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 are looking very um, problematic and very um, unsustainable uh, moving into the, to, as we get closer to the midpoint of the 21st century. So, um, so that's, that was kind of the point I was trying to make is like, you look at even how we talk about climate change. We talk about uh, the Colorado River and it being endangered. And it was like, and when the origin point of that endangerment begins in most people's mind is fairly recently, and it doesn't go back to the Colorado Compact. I feel, I, arguably, the Colorado Compact has had more impact on the Colorado River than uh, the effects of climate change thus far. Mm -hmm. And so why aren't we talking about that? 
Yeah, I, and it's and sort of um, talking about these these myths and these different narratives. You know, when we talk about climate change, um, kind of you know across the news media, and it, there's a lot of doom or talk about apocalypse. And you and and many others point out that that's really a Eurocentric narrative um, around nature and around climate catastrophe. Um, what is that miss out on? What is that lacking? How could that be different? How is that different? Yeah, I mean, this, this, it was funny because I was just on another call earlier today about apocalypse and this, these apocalypse narratives are pretty prevalent now. And, um, and I don't know, I think they're trying to serve as some sort of motivating factor to get people engaged in climate change activism or, um, or they're just people, um, predicting the end of the world. Um, but the what what um, like you said, me, I'm not the first one to come up with this point. Um, many other uh, indigenous scholars and, uh, and environmental historians even have talked about how um, how the, the, the way we understand time and progress and future catastrophe, um, it is neglecting what is the experience of indigenous nations what is the experience of of people on the ground or mar or people that are sucked up into these systems when uh when worlds end you know there are these world ending experiences for people that have already happened and so you're thinking about uh apocalypse and your imagination is imagining the end of the world for a certain group of people and usually they're suburban or affluent or, you know, city people or politicians, or I don't know what is in the minds of people when they're talking about this apocalypse in the future or these, the, the danger of the, um, of, of the rivers. But um, what ends, what ends up being neglected is kind of these past uh, um, intrusions. And so when you're talking about, the damming up of like the Missouri River, right, with the Pixlona Axe and the um, flooding of hundreds of acres of indigenous land that was guaranteed through treaty, that is a world changing experience. That is an apocalypse of sorts. And when you're talking about the building of these dams along the Navajo Nation and the land swaps involved in order to get Lake Powell um, and, and, um, and to still maintain a land base in the Navajo Nation, these are these are apocalyptic uh, scenarios and often, you know, they happen uh, with dams and with the way we treat water in the West. We've created these huge and world changing infrastructures throughout the region that that have also contributed to the changing of the uh, landscape, the urban landscape. You know, e even going through Phoenix or Albuquerque or Santa Fe over the last few years, you see cities growing and growing and growing made possible by these infrastructures. So the worlds are always changing around us. And and what um, is missed by this fear of what's happening at the end of the world due to climate change is, is really the kind of in, innovative, both social, political, and cultural uh, strategies that indigenous people have had and have had have been made to, to have in order to survive across all of these um, apocalyptic events, you know. We've we've dealt with uh, all all sorts of all the all, all sorts of world worst case scenarios. You know, even being moved physically off of our land at the end of a bayonet onto in Huelde, you know, into Bosque Redondo on the eastern end of, the, of um, New Mexico. That's between 1862 and 1868. You know, that is an apocalypse moment for us, and we survived that, and we overcame that, and and we. Um, we made a new world uh, in the Navajo Nation after that. And so there's a lot to learn from indigenous people's ability to respond to these catastrophes and to think about what are the values of a society um, that is um, that has had to overcome all these uh, marginalizations and yet continue to survive. And what is and compare that to the values of a society that are causing those those problems that are causing these catastrophes to occur in the first place. And then maybe rather than uh, uh, um, thinking about technical solutions, we think of um, political and ethical solutions, right? We think about how we treat the planet uh, ethically first before we think about things technically. And I think that gears us in a totally different direction 
then if we continue to 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 have this modernist and and eurocentric um idea of time of progress and and technical innovation and we have crisis and the solution to those crises is more technology improved technology um when we're thinking along those lines we end up um not only creating more problems because you have to create new kinds of industries to serve these new ones we perpetuate existing inequalities you know the the maker of one of the most innovative uh <laughs> evs you know the tesla corporation right one of the owners is now um somebody who's seen as a problematic fact, uh, figure in in, uh, in media ownership with the, the acquisition of twitter all of these things are kind of connected really um and and you know when we're valuing uh, evs and technological innovation over what are our over social directionality and what are the values of the society then um then we're not looking at other kinds of solutions um how do we how do we uh work on social political and economic inequalities at the same time while we're dealing with things that are seen to be in the realm of the environment environmental crises um and i think that is kind of the larger more i guess philosophical question that we have to ask ourselves when we're thinking about um uh, about these uh, ideas of apocalypse. So, I'm sorry that's a really long-winded answer and it feels like it's leading leaving with this kind of vague um idea of what to do in uh, uh, in people's minds, but um that's basically where I'm at with uh with how we were thinking about these things. So, you know, me and other other people who have been writing about this. Yeah. Well, thank you Professor Curley. I really appreciate it and it's um it's exciting to be having more and more of these conversations. I think kind of dismantling these myths and narratives of the western United States that really just don't I think serve us anymore. So thank you for your work. Yes, you're welcome. Uh, I can keep talking. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about your streets in Albuquerque, gold, lead, coal. What is in the narrative that's being served by those street names? Okay, I'll stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Professor Curley. All right, talk to you later. Bye. Thanks. All right, that will do it for this episode of the podcast. As usual, want to thank the entire New Mexico and Focus team. That is producer Lou DeVizio and also producer Kathy Wimmer, host Gene Grant, Feel Better Soon, Gene, Laura Paskus of Arland, plus the very talented production team here at New Mexico PBS, headed up by production manager Andy Anthony Lostetter and Kevin Maestas, Benjamin Yaza, Robert McDermott, Aaron Senna, Appreciate all the hard work they do each and every week. And can't forget our student crew, UNM students who help us out in the studio each and every week. We've got Bennett Riley, we've got Junko Featherstone, Jeanette Dedios. So appreciate everyone's hard work there. We'll be back with a, another brand new episode on Monday. Again, it's going to be another hot, dry, windy weekend. Urge you all to stay safe. Of course, stay out of the National Forest. And uh, we appreciate you, as always, for listening, staying informed and engaged. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy.